0: Welcome to the Must Love Self podcast. My name is Carly Israel and I'm your host. Every week I get to interview a beautiful, courageous, strong woman who is willing to share her ugly and beautiful with the world. Must Love Self is a podcast, a movement, and a decision. It is about women lifting other women up, women holding each other women accountable, and women finding their way along this path. I hope you enjoy.
1: La 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 la.
0: Tell us who you are, Tracy. Who are we going to get to talk to today?
1: Uh, so my name's Tracy Manser. I'm originally from England. I now live in Los Angeles. I am a TV line producer, executive in charge. And I'm also a coach, life coach.
0: I cannot wait to get into it with you. And I have to say, this is just totally my judgment. The fact that you're able to live in Los Angeles is a miracle. Like I like watching all the reality shows about it, but I am just too sensitive of a soul to handle the outside of what I can see there. I'm wondering, how has that been for you?
1: You know, it's actually fine. I obviously, 30 years in TV, I know fake and I know real, and I did live in the middle of Hollywood for a while, but two years ago I decided to move out to the suburbs, so I now live in a beautiful wooded area with, you know, everyone knows their neighbours, we've all got dogs, and it's all very peaceful and lovely, so I don't have to deal with the BS that goes on in the middle of Hollywood all the time. A visit for work and then I come home to the peace and quiet.
0: I feel like we have this awesome opportunity since you are in the business. Could you tell us women who look at these shows and movies and judge and ourselves and compare what is real and what isn't? And like beyond anything we can comprehend, like there's just makeup artists and people doing all sorts of stuff for them because it's very confusing as women when we see all of
1: that. So yes, you have the hair and makeup, you have the glam teams, you have a crew of 15 people standing behind the camera. There is an element, as I say, of realness to it, but the sort of the comparisons and people thinking, oh gosh, my life should be like that. No, you know, if you've got a TV crew behind the scenes, there's there's going to be an element of money there as well, which will allow for some of the, the nicer things to happen. For example, with The Bachelor, you know, we all know that as much as we love a beautiful love story between two people, they're living in a bubble for a period of kind of six to eight weeks while that filming's going on. And you'll be shooting 24 hours a day on some of those shows but you only see an hour of that edited down, which is usually three or four days worth of footage that's made into one episode. So you have to take it with a pinch of salt. You have to realize that it's the edited highlights, much like an Instagram, Facebook. What you want oh, to see, right? What exactly. do you want to put out there? It's what you want to project to the outside world is what that television show is showing you. Plus, we have to make it entertaining. Of Otherwise... Course you know, nobody wants to watch paint dry. They want to see the big makeover at the end. And we like to look at pretty things. It's not like who wants to
0: watch somebody that's just a total mess all the time. We can look at our, like, I always feel like Clinton and Stacey are gonna pop out somewhere and be like, Carly, you've won $5,000 because all I wear is like leggings and like funny shirts. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I wanna ask you, why did you say yes to this conversation?
1: Because I have kept my voice hidden for a very, very long time. Um, I was someone, whilst it looked very glamorous to the outside world, you know, working in TV, going to showbiz parties, working with celebrities, whatever it was, traveling the world, I had massive panic attacks almost every day to the point where some days I was physically sick before I left my house to go to work. And I would not take jobs on the basis of how big the team would be, because I knew I would be okay with a small team production team. But anything over kind of 15, 20 people would send me into a blind panic where I wasn't able to do the job to the best of my ability. So I restricted myself. Um, and I think a lot of people have panic attacks and have issues with imposter syndrome, and they don't necessarily realize that it is part of their mental wellness, there are other things that they can do to help. So, you know, whilst I, yes, have an amazing life, I've been afforded a, a fantastic life from the work that I've done. I really missed out on about 15, 16 years where I wasn't actually living. And enjoying
0: so, and like, appreciating. I wasn't
1: doing anything. I wasn't going out. I had very few friends. I never had a relationship because I just didn't have the self-confidence to, to even go out, let alone meet someone and then date them. So yeah, I, I struggled for a long time. Um, and I want wanted to use my voice now, I'm on the other side of it. I'm now celebrating 3,161 days today of no panic attacks. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, somebody like an alcoholic that they kind of count their days. I want a chip for mine. And I'm not saying that having an alcohol addiction is the same to a panic attack. But there are similarities in that it, it is something that looms over you every single day. Um, and I just want other people to recognize that they don't have to live that way. And there is help available. And you're not alone.
0: I love it so much. We're going to get into it in a minute. I want to know if you'd be willing to rate yourself on the three areas muscle of self focuses on. And the rating is going to be one in through one in 10. Mm -hmm. One is about my inner voice is not kind and it's chewing on me or making me not want to live my life. And 10 is my inner voice, regardless of its noise, is not holding me back and is not unkind to me. Where are you today in terms of your body image?
1: My body image is probably an 8 at That's the moment. Awesome.
0: And yeah. what is the lowest it's ever been?
1: Oh, down to a 1. I've literally hated myself.
0: When was that when you were having when you were having such a hard time with the panic
1: attack? uh yeah, during that time I would binge eat for comfort so I put on a lot of weight which whilst I don't mind being larger, I wasn't happy because it was I knew that it was self-inflicted as a way of not even comforting myself. It was, it was further abuse to my own body. So you weren't
0: yeah. dealing with what was really going on. I wasn't
1: dealing with anything. Yeah.
0: What would you rate yourself in terms of your worth, knowing that you belong, knowing that you're not impostor, imposter, knowing that you are exactly where you need to be
1: right now. It's about a nine.
0: Yay. Yeah. Was I'm it really... low same amount of time
1: around that time? Period? Uh, it, yeah. That's varied over the years because you know some of the shows i've worked on have been really fun supportive teams and um, we've just laughed and joked and giggled every day so you feel better about yourself during those times so you know those would be up and then other times when you're kind of between jobs and sitting alone at home feeling desperately unhappy then yeah obviously the number goes down so that varies but right now yeah i'm i, I feel like i've kind of finally kind of found where i should be in the world
0: that makes me feel so much hope and yeah. then what would you rate your own ability to use your voice to advocate for yourself?
1: That now is definitely a nine and a half. There's still moments when I have imposter syndrome. There's still moments when I doubt myself. And you know, that little Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder comes to talk to you. But I've got pretty good tools now that I can deal with it and, you know, take a breath, go for a walk, do what I need to do for my mental wellness. to to then be able to come back. But yeah, I'm not afraid of telling someone these days that I didn't appreciate that, or that didn't work for me, or actually, thank you. That was really kind. I think it's so important when
0: we find our voice that we have that courage to use it. And I like that you said that you found things that help you get in that place. I want to know if you were willing to go back to when you were a little girl, Mm -hmm. if you tell us what it was like growing up in terms of What you learned about what a woman or a girl should be like or shouldn't be like, should act like, should look like, should behave like when you were growing up?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I hope my mother doesn't (laughs) listen to this. Um, I was brought up in a middle class British family. So it's slightly different from growing up in the States. My parents are both only children, so they had no siblings. I have no cousins, aunts, uncles, or anything like that. So we're a very small, tight-knit family. I have one older brother, my mum and dad, and that was it. My mum, who I adore, was quite an overbearing character. And I think a lot of people can relate to this. I'm not kind of, oh, woe is me. Mm -hmm. Um, My father was workaholic still would be a workaholic to this day but he had to retire because you know that gets forced on you at a certain age Mm -hmm. um so he was away a lot which meant that although it wasn't a single parent family there were a lot of times that my mother was taking on both kind of parental roles um yeah I can remember a time when she actually introduced me to someone else as, oh, here's my daughter. I think I was 24, 25 at the time. Here's my daughter. She's still single. Mm -hmm. Um, And other times when she would look at me and say things like, oh, you do look nice when you make an effort. And I kind of thought I made an effort most days. You know, we all have those days when we want to stay in our PJs. But Yeah, it
0: sounds like she um, based a lot of worth on looks and if you had a partner.
1: Yeah, it was for her, it was outside appearances. You know, how are people judging you? And she had a really tough childhood. So I do believe that you can only teach what you were taught or that you have learned. Um, And she didn't know any better. She didn't know any different. So, you know, I don't blame her for that. I'm not angry with her about it. It's a shame that she wasn't given the opportunities that I was. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of times that I sort of felt judged from the outside. When
0: you heard those, you know, her words about she's still single, Mm -hmm. what did you, how were you able to separate her stuff from your stuff?
1: That took a long time Mm -hmm. and a lot of looking back. Especially with our mom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know the people that you love the most are the ones that know the buttons to push to yeah. really wind And we you want that approval Absolutely. because we want,
0: right, we want them to feel proud of. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it took a long time, but as I say, you know, doing work on myself, I'm able to separate that out now at the time. Yeah. It hurt. It stung. You know, you, you hear things like that and it goes, it's like a dagger to the heart, but you also know inside that, well, that's not actually true. And there may be a reason why I'm still single, mum, that I haven't shared with you because you don't need to know or I don't want you to know. So, yeah, it, it isn't every, I think every family, every child will go through the same thing with their parents. It's it, whether that's a single family, you know, a same sex family, whatever it may be, we all have, I think it's in the job description of a parent to <laughs> fuck up your kids yes, when they And
0: finding our own way. You wrote down when I asked you what age you became self-conscious. You said 11. Hmm. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that?
1: I had to go to see a doctor at our hospital for a sort of female, you know, checkup. And it was a male doctor. My mother stayed in the room outside because at the time it wasn't advocated for a parent to stay in the room. You just assumed, you know, somebody with a white coat was responsible And I remember that they brought in three trainee doctors who all kind of prodded and poked at me. And at 11 years old, to A, be sitting kind of pants down uh, with three men taking a look at you and fingers prodding was extremely uncomfortable. And I remember I clearly can remember feeling not abused, not assaulted, but definitely that this was wrong. Um, and I came out of the room crying and nobody did anything. Your mom and, wasn't
0: like, what's happening?
1: No, no, because she, you know, she didn't know what had happened. I didn't have the vocabulary right. at the time to be able to explain that that felt uncomfortable. And I don't just mean like the physical side of things, just the emotional side was, was wrong. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of affected me a, a great deal. and again, it's only looking back now, years and years later, that you can kind of pinpoint where things started to go a little bit wrong.
0: So at what point did you start having the panic attacks?
1: When I was 24.
0: Will you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Uh, A week before my 24th birthday, I was set up by a friend to go on a blind date. And I met this guy at a pub in North London And we sat down, had a drink and we'd been chatting kind of via messenger before that. We had a drink and then he had a phone call from his housemate to say that he'd locked himself out of his apartment. So the person I was on the date with kind of said, it's going to take me 25 minutes to drive there, 10 minutes to figure him out, 25 minutes to drive back. It's the middle of November. It's freezing cold. I don't want to leave you in a pub on your own. Come with me. We'll figure him out and then we'll go and find somewhere to have a drink near me. sure, you know, he was a friend of a friend of mine. So I had no reason to distrust him at all. Hopped in the car, got to his apartment. There was no housemate stood outside. So we walked up three flights of stairs thinking that we'd find him outside the door to the apartment. He wasn't there. The guy I was on the date with opened the door to check if he'd managed to make it inside. And as I walked in behind him, I was held, pillowcase over my head, and I was kept there for two days and they both sexually assaulted me as much as they could.
0: What a fucking nightmare. I
1: was dropped off at my front door two days later, wrapped in a blanket that they picked up from Goodwill. So no personal items on me at all. Um, they'd taken everything away. So I had no means to escape because I, I had no clothes, no shoes, no bag, no phone, no nothing. And yeah, I was just dropped off at my front door. And at the time... And we're going back quite a long way. If you were assaulted at that point and you reported it, the onus was on the female to prove that this had happened to them. And yeah, exactly. Mm, Slightly less,
0: yeah. Yeah. You were kidnapped. You were were kidnapped and raped. Yeah. No, you were like you did. You want to stay there?
1: Absolutely not.
0: Right. What I think is so hard because. I can't even fathom. I mean, that story is a nightmare. I don't know. I've been raped. I don't know many women who have not had some sort of assault, but like sure. what you went through, I can't even fathom. That is a miracle. You're alive. I can't imagine yeah. like how you, how that couldn't turn you into someone who felt so much anxiety.
1: But the thing was, so I got home and my housemate let me in and we kind of I laughed it off. She just thought I'd had a wild weekend with this guy. And I was so embarrassed because I had willingly gone to his place, even though it was premeditated by him and his housemate. I was so embarrassed that I didn't tell anyone what had happened. This
0: is something that a lot of women have and I had that too was because my mind my inner voice said well you shouldn't have gone to his house and you shouldn't have taken off because I I fooled around with the person before well you shouldn't have taken off any of your clothes what kind of message do you you wouldn't have you know place yourself in that position that is the bullshit of society telling us anything other than a woman that says no one time is rape it's rape
1: absolutely absolutely
0: so at Um, what point in your life did you tell somebody
1: uh, not until I hit 40, wow. so 16 years later.
0: What made you finally get to the place where you're like, I can't live with this by myself?
1: Because I just recognized that I had this incredible life. I mean, I was out four or five nights a week. I was on red carpets. I was kind of auditioning to do hosting jobs. I was. I, I mean, I had the perfect life from anyone looking from the outside, but there was such turmoil going on in my head that... The assault itself didn't cause the panic attacks. The fear of it happening again and the shame Mm -hmm. caused the panic attacks. And I obviously work that I've done on myself and kind of looking back, I didn't immediately start the panic attacks. They happened, but they weren't every day. They grew and they grew more and more and more as that voice in my head got louder and louder and louder. And then, I hit 40 and I went out for dinner with a girlfriend and I had probably four, five good girlfriends at that stage, but that was it. Very small kind of social circle. And she just sort of said, what are you going to do for your birthday? You need to do something. Do, just do something to celebrate. And I kind of realized that, do you know, I haven't done anything. There's all these things that I want to do in my life that I haven't done. It was like, I was living the script of someone else's life. Mm. And I'd had, over the years, at various different times, suicidal thoughts. I'd never gone through with it or tried it. But you know it's something that you think about because you're just desperately unhappy. And when your closest friends don't know what's happened to you, they can only judge you on what you're allowing them to see. They all loved me, but I didn't love myself. So I hadn't allowed myself to do anything fun in my life. And as I say, it was and
0: they didn't, really? they, didn't they,
1: they didn't know why. why they didn't know why you had no, back. Yeah. And because I hadn't told them, they had no reason to think that something so horrific had actually happened. They just thought I was introvert, shy, not very outgoing, all those things that actually I was the complete opposite. So yeah, that little kind of note from a friend saying, you should do something. I jumped on the bus to go home that night by the time I got home, I'd written a list of 10 things that I'd wanted to do, but hadn't. And I mean, like simple things like doing a yoga class that most people wouldn't even think twice about doing. I'd struggled with that for 15 years. I wanted to try it, but I didn't have the confidence to walk into a class on my own. So I wrote down a list of of 10 things. Can I ask you a
0: question? Yeah. Do you think it was because your inner voice was judging you so much that you should have known better which is bullshit and that's why you didn't allow yourself to do simple things like what do you think have you found out yet the reason why you didn't allow yourself to do simple things
1: uh because i it became a vicious circle I knew that if I would do something I would have a panic attack and the panic attacks would literally wipe out memories for me a panic attack kind of felt like The lights had been turned off. The sound was turned down. My extremities like hands and feet would get freezing cold. My heart would race. My mouth would go dry and I wouldn't be able to move. And those would last for several hours. So although I was still able to function, I have no recollection of years of my life. I have to actually look back at my resume to kind of pinpoint when something may have happened, because I can remember the work that I was doing, but I can't remember that was a controlled environment
0: that you could show up and and focus on the work
1: whereas walking into a yoga class where you don't know anyone and you think oh everyone's going to look at me and judge me just causes that fear to rise and that kind of stress to take over again and then yeah you just decide well I won't go to yoga class then I just won't do it and I did that for 15 years I just didn't do the things I wanted to do
0: what else was on your list
1: Oh, so, well, it ended up being a list of 40 things, (laughs) which I promptly then didn't do anything with for two months. But uh, the 40 things consisted of really simple things like having a beauty treatment once a month. And I lived in the middle of London, so I was able to go to the West End Theatre every month. I wanted to learn to ski and to surf and to go horse riding on a beach and to chop like a chef without losing a finger. And to go to the Louvre in France and just in Paris and just walk around and look at the art all day. And I wanted to go to Milan to see The Last Supper because that's an incredible piece of artwork and quite something to see. And just other silly things. i would never been skinny dipping. You wanted to live. Yeah. I'd never been on a roller coaster, for goodness sake. You know, all things that I probably would have done in my 20s and early 30s, either with girlfriends or on dates, and I hadn't done any of them. So it wasn't a bucket list. It was a year of challenges. And yeah, I set about doing all 40 things during my 40th year. How do you do? Oh, well, 39 out of 40 by the end of the year. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and even more so is when you write a list and you say, oh, once a month, I'm going to do that. That becomes 12 things. And I did that for two of the things without recognizing. So it was 64 things. That I did, and there's only 52 weeks in the year, so it was more than one a week. So yeah, it took some doing, but I wrote a, a blog about it at the time, completely anonymous. I needed, I knew I needed an accountability buddy, but I didn't want to put myself out there and share it with someone so specifically. So being anonymous on the internet was was a really easy way of keeping myself anonymous because there were people that were reading it and coming back, going, "Hey, what did you do last week? What what are we doing next week?" So that was that was really good fun, and actually. Now I recognize that actually I achieved all 40 things. The one I didn't think I'd done during the year was to fall in love. But now looking you back did with yourself, absolutely. That year, although the panic attacks didn't stop, they really settled down. I had maybe three during that year. And when I'd finished all 39, 40 things, I, that's when I actually met a life coach And I didn't know about life coaching at that stage. I'd not really heard of it. I knew about therapy, but not coaching. And I liked the idea of it being forward focused. Mm -hmm. Um, And he actually ran a retreat. He was British, but he ran a retreat for a week in Florida. And much panic ensued this, but I ended up booking myself onto that retreat. And I have to say, it's probably the best money I've ever spent on myself. It was six months worth of savings for me. Was a huge expense. And I nearly walked out the first night because we had to share rooms with people that we didn't know. And there were 26 women on that retreat. And genuinely, I love and adore every single one of them. I'm still in touch with several of them. And we're kind of nearly 10 years later. It was the best decision I ever made. And that was when I had my very last panic attack. That's the day that I count from the day I introduced myself on that retreat. I had a panic attack and I haven't had one since.
0: What do you think? took place there that helped you get to a place where you could feel like you're in the present?
1: There were two things that happened. There was an exercise that one of the women kind of volunteered to show us all how to do, and then we were supposed to group up with a buddy and do it. And I sat and watched her be so brave and so vulnerable in front of essentially a room full of strangers. She didn't take on anyone's judgment and we were all there really cheering her on and supporting her. It was became such a, a beautiful kind of small community in that beige room. But I sat there and I was so jealous because I didn't know if I would ever be in a position to be as brave as she was being in that moment. And that was a real kind of triggering point of I've, I've got to get there. I have to be able to deal with this. And another thing that happened was. After that actual exercise, I kind of broke down and I cried. And one of the trainers on on the course just said to me, just write it down, just whatever it is, just write it down. And when I went to bed that night, got my computer out and I wrote and I must have written for about six hours. And at times I couldn't even see the screen through the tears. I just got it down on paper and I handed it to him that the following morning to read kind of over breakfast. And he very generously did so. And he handed it back to me like an hour later and just went, "That was beautiful. And I thought that was it. I stuffed the papers back in my bag and kind of that was done. But later on that day, he actually kind of said, right, you know, this is something we don't usually do, but I think it would be very beneficial for everyone in the group. But Tracy, I would love you to come up and and read your story to everyone. And, you know, that panic kind of started taking over. And I just thought, well, if I can't do it here and I can't do it now, then I'm never going to be able to do it. And I did, I read, read out what I had written down. And the strangest thing happened is that I was not emotional over it. I'd cried all my tears the night before. But when I looked up, every single person in that room was crying. And several of those people came up to me afterwards and said, something similar happened to me and I've never spoken about it either. So thank you. And that's when I realized that actually talking about it, A, took away the sort of stigma It took away the hold it had over me because it no longer affects me in that way. I'm able to talk about it freely and almost in a detached way, which is still a self preservation mechanism. But sharing that and knowing that if I could get through that at one of my lowest moments in my life, then I can do anything. And that was such a powerful thing for me.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That is basically what I believe Muscle of Self is about. It's about women. Sharing our ugly and our beautiful, whatever that Mm -hmm. looks like, and giving each other permission and holding. I know, so I try taking my own life, and you'll find out because I'm going to send you my story when I was 19. I didn't get what I wanted, thank God. But one of my jobs is to hold the light in the darkness for others so I can show them the way out. Right. And that's one of your jobs is the more you share that story and give others that permission, then they don't have to feel alone.
1: Yes. And As you said, it's a universal story. I don't think that what happened to me is unique in any way, shape or form. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people around the world that are going through similar and worse every single minute of every single day. But they don't necessarily have a platform to be able to share that story. They don't have a support network around them where they feel safe to share that story. And that's the biggest thing, because there is still judgment from people of, oh, you were raped, therefore you're damaged goods, or, oh, you had panic attacks, therefore you have a mental illness. Well, neither of those things are true. I am a really independent, self-made woman. I have been running teams of 175 people. I've looked after millions and millions of dollars in TV shows. I've worked both sides of the Atlantic and various places around the world. There is nothing weak about me. I was just very unfortunate to have had something that happened that affected me a certain way. My mental health is perfectly fine. My self-worth is perfectly fine. So I want other people and especially women. But this happens to men too. Mm -hmm. But I want other people to know that you are perfectly fine exactly as you are. And you may be struggling with things and you may not have someone to talk to, but one day it will come when it's right. And when you feel able to do so, and at that point, that, oh, the relief that will come from your shoulders, but then you will know that you're in the right place as well.
0: I love that so much. And I have a question for you because of the business you're in. Mm -hmm. Once you became honest with yourself and others, have you noticed that you have spoken up more or have had to say something if you saw something with how things were going to be portrayed? Or, yeah, I was wondering.
1: Yes, so there was one show I remember working on in the UK, it was a reality show, one of these kind of top model type Mm -hmm. shows. It wasn't top model. And I remember that the commissioning editor suggested something for one of the tasks that the contestants should do. And I just didn't think it was quite right didn't sit well. So I privately spoke with the showrunner who had the commissioner's ear, kind of said, yeah, you're gonna get some feedback on that from the viewers. And we ended up scrapping the idea. So, you know, done delicately, done privately, didn't have to be a big show and dance about things, but it was just kind of a tap on the shoulder to someone that, yeah, that's not right. There've been other jobs as well where I've seen elements of bullying, I've stood up in the middle of the office and called someone out on it in front of everyone. Because I feel if you're bullying someone in an office, in like an open plan space, and everyone can hear, then they should be reprimanded in the same fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't do that behind doors. You let everyone know that you've called that person out. Doesn't always win me friends or good favor. Don't really care. Yeah. Um, and I've left jobs because there has been Peer pressure, bullying, just bad treatment of people. I may have brought it up with my bosses in the hopes that something would happen. Sometimes it has, sometimes it hasn't. When it hasn't, you know, I think everyone should advocate for themselves. But then there are other shows where I've worked on. I usually like keep a tin of candy on my desk so that people can come over and I judge how much candy goes down that day on what the general consensus and feeling is within the office, because people tend to go for a sugar rush when they're feeling a bit down. I can then see, right, well, actually, you know what? We need to do something good for the team. We need to do something supportive. We need to either send everyone home or we're going out for drinks or we're doing something to thank them for their hard work. And, it, and don't get me wrong. I absolutely love what I do, but I do try to now lead from the front in making sure that There is no systematic bullying that we are being conscious that everybody is treated fairly and equally and that you know if somebody is a bit quiet more introverted that they don't get left behind or isolated from other people who are more extrovert and outgoing and are a bit louder in the office because you know what it feels like absolutely yeah and i don't want anyone to ever feel that they're alone
0: I knew that your that was going to be your answer. I had a feeling that you got so much strength from all this growth and yeah. I'm so glad that you're using it to stand up for other people. Do you happen to remember the quote you shared? It was from Steven Spielberg.
1: Yes. It's on my wall in front of me so I look at it all day every day. It says the hardest things to listen to, your instincts, your human personal intuition always whispers. It never shouts. And if you can listen to the whisper, then that is going to be what you do for the rest of your life.
0: I love that so much. It gave me chills and I underlined when you wrote it, it never shouts. And that's been my experience Mm -hmm. with my higher power. I love that. Thank you so much. Are you ready for lightning round? Yes. Okay. If you could go back to yourself at the time when you came out of that horrible situation, what would you say to that 25-year-old, 24-year-old? woman that you were then from the woman you are today
1: it's gonna be okay Steve Jobs Apple Steve Jobs and he says you can't connect the dots looking forward you can only connect them looking backwards so you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future and I think anyone that's been through a similar situation to you or I or anyone else It is. It's that looking backwards. It it doesn't make sense at the time. You don't know what the future brings, but when you have the ability to be able to turn around and look back at the road you've traveled, it it makes sense. Now, it doesn't mean to say it was a pleasant experience or a happy road that you took, but it makes sense.
0: Yeah. I love that. What would your eight-year-old self say to you now?
1: What would she say now? Go for it.
0: I have a question to follow up with. Do you have more things on your list you're going to do?
1: I do challenges for myself every year. Like I, one big challenge? No, just if something comes up and I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to yeah. do that. Then I do it. I, I live by kind of this thing that I call the daily five. I use the word daily, use the letters for each thing. And the why at the end is for say yes. So if something excites me, then I say yes. I don't worry about the fear. I don't worry about the judgment. I don't worry about what might come from it. If it excites me and I want to do it, I damn well make sure it's going to happen because I don't want to miss out on anything else in life. I missed a lot of life.
0: Is there anything you want to share that you're working on right now that's a
1: challenge? Well, right now I'm starting a coaching practice so that I can help other people. There is help out there. And I don't mean me. I mean, just there is help out there. So yeah, setting that up. I love TV but maybe that is going to take kind of second place to being more of an advocate for people and and helping in the future. So I'm slightly excited about that.
0: What does it mean to be beautiful?
1: Oh, what an amazing question. Mm -hmm. Just having not self-confidence because that varies and that is affected by a lot of different things. But just, I guess, having a sense of peace when you fall asleep.
0: What does it mean to be a strong woman?
1: To be able to smile.
0: What would you like others to say about you? I like her. If you found out you only have six months left to live, what do you want to do with the rest of your time? Help. Last question. You get one piece of advice for every woman to hear. What do you want to tell them?
1: Hope. Help one person every day. I love hope. If you help one person every day, Your bucket gets full.
0: How do we find you?
1: You can find me at tracymancer.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This has been so much
0: fun. It has been. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you are willing to rate, review, and share with your people, it makes such a difference for others to find it. And if you wanted to check out my memoir, Seconds and Inches, it's available on Amazon as an audiobook with me narrating a paperback and digital. I promise you you will love it. Have an awesome day and I love you. And one more thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you.
1: La 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 la